welcome to the Broken Meeple Podcast, episode 4. My name's Luke Hector, and thank you for listening and playing games. In today's episode, I'll be going through a few new releases that are to be expected over the next month or two that I've got my eye on. I'll then be talking about my first impressions over Lords of Waterdeep that I had the pleasure of playing on Monday. Slight spoiler for you there. And later on, I'll be having a quick little chat about what I like to call completionism. It's, I don't know whether that exists as a phrase or not, but it's what I call my condition, which is when you buy a game and the expansions come out for it, do you almost feel compelled to buy the expansions, or do you sit back and pick and choose the ones that you need? So without further ado... First up, soon to be released on September the 16th, is the next expansion to Smash Up. This is a light card game by AEG that has grown in popularity with a few people I know at various clubs, and is one of my more favourite light games. It sits alongside King of Tokyo as my alternative version for a light game. The expansion is the obligatory Cthulhu expansion, and I'm not saying obligatory just because I want you to buy it. No, it literally is titled that. And it introduces four new factions for the main game, just like Awesome Power Level 9000 did. Except in this case, they've all got a Cthulhu theme. We start off with the Cultists, then the Elder Gods, then Innsmouth, and Miskatonic. Now, if you're not an Arkham Horror fan or even have any basic knowledge of Arkham Horror, then some of these factions aren't really going to make much sense to you. That doesn't matter though, it says obligatory on the box, therefore you have to get it. But just as a, a quick recap, cultists, fairly self-explanatory, ancient gods is basically going to be things like Cthulhu and all the demon horrors of hell and the other worlds that Arkham Horror is based around. Innsmouth in Arkham Horror is a seaside village, well, seaside, a dock village, I suppose is more the accurate term, where you're more than likely in this deck going to get lots of crazy, crazy locals and almost fish people that kind of resemble, uh, I'm trying to think of a good description, um, if you've ever played World of Warcraft, think murlocs, think the sort of like nasty fish people with teeth, it's a bit like that. And Miskatonic University is basically intellectual students, so I'm not quite sure what that one's going to be, but I'm already coming up with some ideas for combinations, and I'm going to be picking it up when it comes out, so I look forward to uh, trying out ancient god dinosaurs and uh, Innsmouth ninjas and Miskatonic wizards at some point. Coming up for the Halloween month, we have the next expansion for King of Tokyo as well, called, it's simply just called Collector's Pack 1. Uh, I think it's just called Halloween Edition or Halloween Special, something like that. But essentially it adds two new characters to play, Pumpkin Jack and Boogie Woogie, keeping to the whole Halloween theme. Um, each of these characters has got their own stand, their own evolution cards, the same as what Power Up brought into the fray. For component people out there, they have also released some orange and black dice with the game just to keep with the whole Halloween theme, so they'll look pretty nice alongside the green and black ones. But the more interesting mechanic from this game is going to be a new type of card for the special abilities called Costumes. 
Now, this is probably going to take the game into, well, I mean, it was already light. This is going to be pretty humorous and light now with costumes being run in the fray. These will basically grant you special abilities, but the catch with this is that if your creature throws three claws on the dice, then you get to tear the costume off someone else and keep it as your own. So already there are mental images of my Gigazor fighting King Kong and stealing his cheerleader outfit. Um, maybe I've got some issues. But no, it's going to be a pretty good expansion by the sound of it. It's not going to add much in the way of new things, it's just a bit more of the same with one extra little tweak. But I'm sure I'll be grabbing that at some point as well and reviewing that alongside King of Tokyo Power Up. Um, on that note, if you want to check out my review of King of Tokyo, it was uploaded earlier today, so go check it out. Sooner or later this month, we're going to have the next expansion for Pandemic in the lab. Um, aside from adding a solitaire variant in, this is also going to include a lab board where effectively instead of playing cards to cure the diseases, you have to go through almost like a little mini game of researching the disease, siphoning it through, uh, I forget the scientific terms for it, but effectively you're going through a lab experiment to try and figure out the cure for the disease and then cure it that way. From what I hear from people previewing it over in America, it does ramp up the difficulty somewhat. So it'll put pay to these people who find Pandemic a bit too easy, although I think that's rubbish because you can really ramp up the difficulty in Pandemic to extreme levels, pretty much suicidal levels. We're talking beyond ghost stories type hard here. And, I mean, if you want to play that kind of difficulty, then you must be a slight partial sadist, because that difficulty pretty much slaps you before the game starts. And finally, not necessarily a new incoming game, it's just recently been released. <clears throat> it's the new expansion to Lords of Waterdeep's Scoundrels of Skullport. <laughs> Try saying that fast when you're drunk. Essentially, this one now adds two modules to the game, and they say you can add either or, or, although most people have come to the consensus that they're going to add both anyway, because they add a lot of good stuff. One of them effectively adds a little mini board with some extra actions that your workers can be placed on, as well as more quests, more carding from the intrigue pile, more buildings, and basically adding more of the same, but the quests and cards within look a lot more varied, they don't look quite as samey as the original game was. And the second module introduces a corruption mechanic. Now this represents the sort of more skullduggery type thing that goes on underneath Waterdeep, and the way this works is you'll have, again, more actions that your workers can do, and more quests and cards to go with them, except these will yield bigger rewards than the ones before. The catch is, though, you have to take a corruption token every time you use them, and sometimes you might have multiple for doing a particular quest or intrigue card. Now, the corruption mechanic is measured by another board, which has the corruption tokens laid out on it, in various circles, dictating how many negative points each one is worth by the end of the game. The more corruption that is taken, the more negative value each corruption token has. So I can see this one selling like hotcakes if you are a fan of Lords of Waterdeep. And finally, just a quick little bit of news 
coming up for those who live in the Hampshire area. In Southampton on October the 12th, which is a Saturday of this year, from noon until 10.30pm, the Winston Hotel has been hired out for a day of general board games. It's going to be a convention called Mini Stab 2013. I have no idea why it's called Mini Stab, and even the person who told me about this didn't know exactly what it stood for or whether it stands for anything at all. I personally can't see how stabbing relates to board games in any sense of the word. I suppose you want to link it to backstabbing maybe, but let's face it, stab is not the sort of thing I would normally call a board game convention, and how do you mini stab someone anyway? Is that like... Just poke them with a knife, I'm not sure. But I digress. Essentially, on Saturday, October the 12th, there will be plenty of board games being played. There is rumours of various Arkham Horror games going to be played with some fan-made variants as opposed to the normal expansions. And I'm looking forward to testing out one of them, being an Arkham Horror fan myself. So, if you are in the Southampton area and you know where the Winston Hotel is, check it out. Join us there. Okay, and we're on to the first impressions again. This time we're going back to, well, I've already just been talking about it, haven't I? Lords of Waterdeep. Now, this is not going to include the expansion that I've just been talking about a second ago. That's only talking about the original game here. The person who brought the game in did not have the expansion, and to be fair, I'm used to testing out games without the expansion so that I get a feel of them to start with anyway, and then I add the expansions in. Now, Lords of Waterdeep is published by Wizards of the Coast, the same people who do Dungeons and Dragons, and this game is supposedly based on Dungeons and Dragons. That's what they publicise when they sell the game. Now, the but what it boils down to is effectively a worker placement game. So if you're familiar with that genre, you have your characters that you place on the board in various locations to grant you actions for the turn. And throughout the game, you are amassing victory points by recruiting fighters and rogues and wizards and clerics and constructing special buildings. All of this is to amass victory points and eventually as you would expect from a Euro-style game, amass the most victory points to win. As well as the constructing the buildings and recruiting the characters, you will be completing quests by sending those characters out on said quests, and then also playing what they call intrigue cards, which are effectively just special action cards that you can play during your turn, which usually either help you or more than likely hinder someone else. Now... Uh, effectively, it, that may sound boring by itself, but this game actually works really well. The only thing that bugs me about the game, to a reasonable extent, is the fact that this game goes on and on about being a Dungeons & Dragons game, just because Wizards of the Coast publicised it. However, yes, okay, you've got the rogues and the fighters that you're recruiting, but they're represented by cubes. They are just different colour cubes. Fighters are orange, clerics are white. That, you know, there's no special meeple or no special ability for having the rogue in the fighter. It's just a quest that you complete will require so many fighters, so many rogues. So, the D&D theme, even though it's held in Waterdeep, which is quite a famous location in D&D lore, it feels very tacked on. You could easily replace the D&D theme in this game with another one, and it would work just as well. But that's a minor gimmick, and to be fair... I've played D&D a lot in my time, I've gotten a little bit bored of it now, but I was a bit of a D&D veteran in my college days, and 
while playing this game, you know, the little bit of theme that is there does come out. You know, you if you just crack a joke or two or just get the feel that you are recruiting rogues and fighters and doing specific quests, then, you know, that theme does come out in a sense. But I warn you now, if you're buying this game solely because it's a D&D game, you might be slightly disappointed because the theme is pretty tacked on. But... That's a minor negative, and to be fair, it's pretty much the only negative I can really say about this game. The mechanics in this game work. They are easy to teach, they are easy to understand, a lot of it is just iconography again. Um, if you don't like iconography, okay, you might need a little bit more understanding, but there's still a reasonable amount of text on some of the quest cards, and to be fair, the iconography is not difficult. They are pretty self-explanatory as to what they give you. Um, I can certainly say, though, Quality-wise, the components in this game are amazing. The board looks very clean and crisp. It almost looks like a giant map of Waterdeep, with the worker placement areas situated very nicely, nicely separated, space for your cubes, space for the building, space for the cards, space for the quests, and the the cards themselves, the artwork is very good, the gold tokens are... For some, I don't know why they didn't just give you gold with 1 and 5 and 10 on them, but instead they give you these weird little, almost like diamond-shaped gold tablet things, and the ones that represent five of them are like a little semi-circle uh, spiky thing. It's kind of weird. It's, I'm not sure why they went with that, probably just to be a bit more thematic, but again, the gold looks nice, and all the cards and on the board and the tokens, they're all high quality, and this game, even the box is of high quality. It almost looks like a D&D book, but it opens in the center. It's like quality went into these components, and it certainly shows. So just, even if you just like collecting games, this is one worth getting just for that alone. But, like I say, the mechanics work really well. Effectively, you will place your worker on an action space and get cubes and complete quests while playing cards and constructing buildings. And I found that there were still multiple paths to victory because not only are you getting victory points for completing the quests and constructing buildings, you also have your own lord. Now, the faction you play makes no difference. There is no special ability. It literally just says what colour you are, which is a bit of a shame. I would have thought they could have thrown in some sort of special ability for the factions, but... Who knows? They've already released one expansion. There's no reason to guess that they wouldn't do it in a second expansion, but that's for time to tell later. However, you each given a Lord character, which is kept secret until the end of the game. These have special victory point bonuses if you can deal with a certain path in your game. So, for example, you might have somebody who's very good at giving you points if you complete lots of arcana quests. Some will give you points for warfare quests. Uh, the lord, or should I say the, uh, um, the the lady that I had, was one that gave me victory points for constructing and controlling lots of buildings. And one thing I'll mention on buildings front, actually, is quite a nice gimmick in this. Um, I can't remember what... can't think of an example off the top of my head where this mechanic appears, but I have seen it in other games. It's where when you construct the building, it gives you an additional action that everybody can use. Except the twist in this game is that once you've got that building out, you control it. So if somebody else uses that ability, you get a little bonus for it. 
And that's quite an interesting tweet because it made a lot of people in my game think twice about using an action because they didn't want to give that player assistance towards their own goals. But occasionally, because this game is very tight, you know, you are going to be fighting for those worker placement spaces and the points in this are quite tight as well. You're going to have to make a decision on just how badly you want that space. And even though there are ways that you can get around that in the game, there are certain bribe cards and there's a building that lets you circumnavigate somebody else's meeple. But in general, you are going to be fighting for these spaces and they are in short supply especially some of the more rarer characters. For some reason, it seems a bit easier to get hold of rogues and fighters than it does wizards and clerics. I'm not quite sure why that is, but it's not a major deal. It's, you know, it's still pretty balanced. And like I said, the points are quite tight. I believe there was less than 20 points between first and last place in the game we did. And for a lot of the game, we were barely within five points of each other. You know, they, your path and decisions mean a lot in this game. It's not necessary to say that one bad turn will completely throw the game. You can still catch up. But certainly don't think that just because somebody completed that 25 victory point condition quest that they are suddenly miles in the lead and you can't catch them up. Believe me, you can. As I found out when for most of the game I was trading in last place, not miles in last place, but just slightly back in last place, before unleashing my lord at the very end, who gave me six victory points per building created. Unfortunately, people rumbled me out on that about three turns before the end of the game, so I couldn't really do it as a shock surprise, but it still got me what I wanted. 36 lovely points to move forward, leapfrog everybody else, and win the game. But it was still quite tight. I was still only about eight to ten points above second place. And like I said, there was less than 20 points separating first and fourth. So you're going to get some very tight games in this. And even though there's only about eight or so turns in the game, the game, I wouldn't say is overly short, but I wouldn't say it was overly long either. I believe it took us less than two hours to get the game done. And Board Game Geek claim that the playing time is about 60 minutes. I'm not quite sure if you could do this in 60 minutes. Maybe if you had two players, three max, but with four or more, no, you're not getting this done in an hour. It's not going to happen. Um, and you can do this with five players as well, which again, you're probably more looking at 90 minutes, two hours max if you're going to have a big game, particularly if you've got to teach them the rules. But there aren't that many rules in this game. It is quite light. And so it's kind of a weird one. I mean, the D&D theme for me does help it a bit. I know there's not much of it, but it does make it more entertaining than, say, trading silk in the Mediterranean or let's build this castle here. Because let's face it, how many Euro games these days usually involve building some castle or church or something along those lines or building a civilization? This one is different. This one, effectively, you've already got your lordship. You are just trying to be the best lord of the bunch. And completing quests is a lot different from just simply going, right, I'll build that building, I'll build that stage. I mean, yeah, you've got buildings in this, but they're a side venture. You've got the buildings and the quest to get you points. So it, it works really well, and it's also quite light. So it will appeal to not necessarily non-gamers, but certainly those who aren't used to heavy Euro games in general. I've got a few mates that still like D&D to this day, and I can see them really liking this game. Even though the D&D theme is slightly tacked on, I think it will just bring them in that little bit more just to let them enjoy the game. But 
I was uncertain whether I was going to like this game because I knew that the theme was tacked on and I thought, just another Euro game. But I was interested to try it. I'm glad I got to try it. I wasn't sure if it was going to be a buyable game, though, on its own because my, I suppose the only other negative I have is that the quests and the intrigue cards almost seemed a bit samey. The buildings were quite good variety-wise, but I felt that there was a lot of repeated mechanics in the quests and intrigue cards. Like, for example, one would say you get no victory points, but if you do a warfare quest later, you'll get two bonus. And there was one for Arcana and Skullduggery and Commerce. And the intrigue cards had similar things and also multiple copies of certain intrigue cards, which isn't a major thing, but I just thought, well, you know, couldn't they have just varied it a little bit more? They certainly had enough component quality to do so, and it wouldn't have really made the deck too bad. So... That's a bit of a niggle for me. However, from what I have watched review-wise on the Scoundrels expansion, I think that expansion, just from what I've read and watched about it alone, I haven't had a chance to test it, but just from that alone, I think that brings Lords of Waterdeep up to a level where I think it's a must-buy for a lot of people who need a light worker placement game in their collection. And funny enough, today I actually placed an order for Lords of Waterdeep and the Scoundrels expansion, because I think the expansion just brought it above that line where I can go, this is not just a good game, it's a great game. So that's my first impressions of Lost of Waterdeep. If somebody brings it to your club, I urge you, try it out and go in with an open mind. Just don't think that you're going into a Dungeons & Dragons game. Think that you're going into a light worker placement alternative to games like Stone Age and to a lesser extent Pillars of the Earth. I think that one's slightly heavier than those two, but not to a great extent. So give it a try. I I recommend it, and I hope at some point I'll be able to obviously get a review up of Lords of Waterdeep um, in time so that I can prepare myself for reviewing the expansion, which I'm sure a lot of you are waiting for. So that's Lords of Waterdeep. Okay, and finally on this episode, I'm just going to talk a little bit about a thought I had when at my last gaming group. Now, I don't know if this word exists, I call it completionism, which is basically my way of saying that when a game comes out and expansions are released, are you inclined to buy every expansion that comes out, regardless of whether it's any good or not, or do you tend to pick and choose? And on top of that, if you're late coming into a particular game and they've already released about five or six expansions, uh, do you have to buy every expansion before you've even tried the base game just because you want to complete the set? Now, I think for most people, this tends to be more of a case that they will buy the base and then buy the expansion, unless they've heard that some expansions are a necessity to the game. Now... The Dice Tower did a top 10 a while back on this, where they did top 10 essential game expansions. And there were ideas and evidence in there which suggested that some games were rubbish. Well, not necessarily rubbish, but just not as good. not Probably not worth buying until you buy the expansion. And I say that rings true in some cases. I mean, for example, just looking at my shelf now, I can see Kingsburg. Now, I played Kingsburg. 
and thought, yeah, it's okay, it's not bad, but, you know, I, I wasn't overly blown away by it. I thought it was a nice twist on the Euro game, and I, I enjoy it. Don't get me wrong, this is a game that's on my shelf, therefore I enjoy it. But the main reason for that is because of the expansion to Forge a Realm, which kicked it up so many notches, it pretty much made it clear that if you are going to buy Kingsburg, you have to buy that expansion, because you won't enjoy it anywhere near as much. And so in a case like that, you're going to want to buy the game and the expansion when you first get into it, because you just will think, well, what's the point in buying just the original game when the expansion makes it so much better? Um, but then you've got other examples where certainly the expansions maybe aren't necessarily worth it, but you just buy them anyway. I suppose my biggest culprit for that would be Cosmic Encounter, where I've just recently actually put in an order for Cosmic Storm, because I think that expansion will still be quite good, but I own all the other expansions to Cosmic Encounter, and after playing all of them, I think most of them, none of them are essential, but most of them were worth it. With the possible exception of Cosmic Alliance, um, I'll talk about that in more detail when I soon do a review on each expansion as a group, but Cosmic Alliance, just as a tiny little spoiler, is probably my least favourite of them all because it's very tailored to only big games, and it also includes the team variant, which I'm not a fan of because personally, Cosmic Encounter is all about being out for number one, yet willing to help as long as you get something in return. You know, it's that classic negotiation game, and I just think the team game doesn't really add anything to it. But I still bought the expansion purely because I just wanted more aliens. So, was it worth it just to get another 20 aliens? Well, it depends on your viewpoint of it. But like I say, completionist, I am a massive culprit of that syndrome, and it's just something I do. I will buy the expansions willy-nilly just to have the whole set. Well, that's not necessarily always the case. Another example I'll look at on the shelf here is Cutthroat Caverns. Now, this game got more popular than I expected when I took it to a particular club. I thought, yeah, it's a good game and I enjoy it, but I didn't think it was going to appeal to everyone. Played it at the Southampton Group once, and now suddenly everybody who's played it is desperate for me to bring it back and play it over and over again. Fair enough, I'll bring it to the next time I'm at Southampton. Um, probably not next Monday, but the Monday after. So, be aware of that, any Southampton listeners. But in that instance, I joined Cutthroat Cabins when they had just brought out the Fresh Meat expansion, which included the Battle Box. Now, I did my research and looked at all the expansions and saw that some added actual new mechanics, but one expansion in particular only added cards and some extra variation on the characters. But Fresh Meat made the expansion that I'm referring to, which I think is called Deeper and Darker, I think it was the first one that was released, it made half a bit redundant because Fresh Meat brought in the customizable characters. So what was the point in having Deeper and Darker apart from just having another 10, 20 odd encounters? On that occasion, I actually skipped that expansion, went straight to Fresh Meat, and then pretty much straight away bought Relic and Ruin, and I think the other one's called uh, Tomb and Tomes or something. Um, I believe that's the name for it. And just shove. Yep, it was called Tombs and Tomes. And because they actually added in extra decks and the fresh meat box actually had room to put those decks in. So on that occasion, I've got no reason to buy that extra Cutthroat Cavern expansion. Because let's face it, you only go through nine encounters in any game. I must have something like 90 to 100 plus encounters in that game. You're just never going to get the same nine twice. So why do I desperately need to buy the box for another 20? 
I mean, okay, you could argue that with Cosmic Encounter, what's the chances are I'm going to go for another 20 aliens? Hard to say, really. I guess I just find Cosmic Encounter more fun than Cutthroat Caverns and therefore kicked it up a notch. Um, also, the expansions for Cosmic Encounter are not that expensive, so I, I guess there was a... You could argue that point, but I like the game that much that I just figured, eh, let's get it. Um, but certainly my most craziest completionist thing has to be Arkham Horror, where, I kid you not, I knew I liked the game after I played a friend's copy of it, and I got into the whole mythos of it, and I'm still going through, slowly but surely, a Necronomicon book that a mate has lent me to, with all the short stories in it, but... I originally just bought the base game and one expansion. I believe I started off with Dunwich Horror. And I thought, yep, that'll do for now. And let's just not go crazy. Ooh, that looks nice. And, oh, well, I'll get that one. And, oh, that's nice as well. I'll grab that one as well. And before I knew it, I had every expansion of the Miskatonic in one big delivery box. Boy, was that a fun box opening day for me. Just opening up and seeing nothing but Arkham Horror printed over every box. So, it's kind of weird. I mean, most people don't get every expansion just for the sake of it. In fact, a lot of people I know, if anything, don't bother with the expansion unless they really love the game, and certainly don't start off with an expansion. Uh, I believe Lords of Waterdeep is likely to get bought by one or two more people, and I'll bet that they won't buy Scoundrels to begin with. Um, so, I think I'm, I think there are more people that resist buying the expansions than there are ones who just go in willy-nilly. Certainly there aren't as many completionists like myself, to my knowledge, where you basically just buy every expansion because you want to play the game. I mean, to be fair, that has slightly backfired in my face on occasion. Uh, Small World is an example. And now, Small World is a brilliant game. I have Small World. I have the expansions to Small World, except for Tales and Legends, which I opted out of. And I've got Small World Underground. But I also bought Small World Realms, thinking that that would be a great thing for later. However, slight spoiler for when I get to review that game, although Small World's not going to get reviewed for quite a while, so don't, uh, you know, don't wait up for that one. Um, but I found that Small World Realms just complicated the game too much and probably will never see play. So, you know, I shot myself in the foot with that one and I'll probably trade Small World Realms for something else that I need. I mean, well, I've already bought the Lords of Waterdeep stuff and I've got the last Cosmic Encounter expansion. So, well, Smash Up Obligatory Cthulhu is coming out, I could trade it for that. Or failing that, the Collector's Pack for King of Tokyo I'm interested in as well. I'll trade it for that. But it's just an example where completionism can sometimes backfire in your face if you're not careful with researching what the expansions will add to the game before you buy it. But occasionally I can hold my own. Like I said, Cutthroat Caverns is missing one expansion. Uh, Small World, like I said, is missing one expansion and Agricola on my shelf. Now, there are loads of expansions you can get for that game, but I have decided that it won't see enough play to warrant all of them, or even that many of them, and to be fair, there is so much in the base game of Agricola, you don't really need the expansions. I mean, you could argue possibly Farmers of the Moor, if you want a couple of extra features, but generally the game is pretty stocked as it is, and you don't need to expand it that much further. There's a lot in that game, especially when you start playing with the interactive and complex decks. 
And let's face it, if you are a little bit of a completionist, you'll probably end up tripping the game out with all sorts of weird special tokens and that. So you'll have probably spent about three expansions worth just tripping the game out with all sorts of weird and crazy stuff. But, you know, I digress. So... Um, I'd be interested to hear what some of you have got to say on the matter, so feel free to leave some comments or contact me on Facebook, Twitter or Google+, and just let me know what your thoughts are on completionism. You know, are you one of these people? Do you have an example of a game where you went crazy and bought all the expansions and was it worth it or did you regret it? I'm interested to know, so feel free to post some comments and let me know on that front. And that about wraps it up for episode 4. Just a quick little insight in what's coming up. You will soon have a review for the original game of Smash Up. I won't be doing the expansion yet because I hope to do the expansion power... Awesome, I nearly said power up then. I'm getting confused with King of Tokyo. No, I mean awesome level 9000. I hope to do that in a review either coinciding with the obligatory Cthulhu expansion or I might do them separately, but chances are I suspect I'll do them as one review and I need to give the Cthulhu expansion a bit of time to settle in first. Um, I hope to be doing a review on Masquerade soon, which is a game created by Bruno Freduti. Is that how you pronounce his name? Hopefully. Sorry if it's not. But he's the guy who created Citadels and from what I can see, is one of the kings when it comes to role selection games. So um, it's been getting quite a lot of play. It's had quite some popular feedback, so I hope to review Masquerade at some point soon as well, preferably before the end of this month, because in October it's going to be a full-on Halloween cliche of Arkham Horror Month. There will be occasional podcasts and reviews talking about other subjects, but predominantly it is going to involve getting reviews up of the base game of Arkham Horror and every single expansion all the way up to Miskatonic explaining what they add to the game and whether they're worth buying if you are not a completionist like myself. There will be occasional other little snippets like a discussion on fan variants if I am introduced to a few and also there might be some first impressions if I get a chance to play games like Elder Sign, uh, the, the dice version of it. And also, I hope to be able to get up a little video, not, not a majorly like, well-produced video, and let's face it, you don't want to see my ugly mug on there, but the storage solution for Arkham Horror is usually one that's discussed quite a lot, and after getting some help from a colleague on YouTube, I was able to use the four big box expansions, including the original game, to effectively store everything to Arkham Horror related in those four boxes, making it very nice and easy to whip it out and play a game without the obscene setup time. So I want to share what I've done in that field to, so that you can take the idea away or perhaps adapt it. I'm certainly not an arts and crafts expert by any means. In fact, the guy who does this normally is a lot neater with his uh, arrangement than I am, but I reckon I did a reasonably good job of taking his advice and going with the flow. So, there's that to look forward to soon. But for now, that's episode 4 done and dusted. Episode 5 should be there in the next couple of weeks. But for now, I'm Luke Hector, this is The Broken Meeple. Thank you for listening and playing games. 